Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about a very, very big subject, which is the unknown, and how to navigate the unknown, and not just the unknown in the world, the unknown within ourselves, and the unknown in terms of the next world. So we've got all these phenomenal levels of the unknown. The unknown that we live with outside of ourselves, the unknown that we live with within ourselves, the unknown in this world, and the unknown in the next world. So basically, all there is is the unknown. (laughs) There's a lot of unknown. And what are the tools to deal with that? But before we get into the main subject, I do want to share one thought that came to me on Shabbos, and I'm actually surprised by this thought because I've never heard this thought before, and this seems to be like, like a real bread and butter thought that, you know, certain thoughts you have, and, and you know there's a reason why you never heard them, but they're so good, you know that they've probably been said for thousands of years, just no one told you, right? Then there are other thoughts that are sort of like, no, no, these are the ones that should be heard and you haven't heard them yet. So anyway, that's, of course, incredibly subjective. But let me just tell you this thought, which is these Parshas are all about the establishment of the Jewish people. And a key element to that is husband and wife coming together and having children. So one of the striking things that you see in terms of the way Yitzchak and Rivka meet through, through the Shidduch Eliezer, through the matchmaker who's Eliezer, and also the way Yaakov and Rachel meet, which they meet directly, both of those things have something very interesting in common, which is they both meet by a well, a well of water. And that makes sense. We, we discussed that a little bit before, that a well, water, especially, just water in general, but water, especially in the context of the desert, really means on the simplest, most basic level, life. So we're really talking about kind of like the launching of life here with these couples coming together. On a deeper level, the Talmud says that water means Torah. So we've got this idea that with these people coming together, this heavenly light, Torah, is going to be flowing into the world. So it's it's working on a number of different levels. But what I want to point out is something more based on the story itself. When Eliezer comes to the well, he says, well, listen, who is going to be right? Who's going to be a proper match for Yitzchak? In other words, who is going to be the mother of the Jewish people? She's got to be kind. Like, kind is like a really, really important trait. And here's a way that her kindness can become manifest. I'm here, I'm a stranger in this new place. She sees that I have camels. If someone, if a woman comes up to me and says, are you thirsty, can I give you water to drink? And then volunteers, and also can I bring water for your camels? That's really going to be an indication that this person has a really big, great heart. Now, interestingly, and Reb Shlomo pointed this out, do you know how much camels drink? Like, it's not a simple thing. It's not like, say, you have a a dog and you just kind of pour a little bowl of water for the dog, right? 
Camels, I, I, I posed this question totally rhetorically in a room yesterday. <laughs> and I said, do you know how much camels drink? And someone in the room said, 40 gallons. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I was shocked. How did you know that? So according to him anyway, 40 gallons. And how many gallons can you carry comfortably at once? Now, if he had 10 camels, that's 400 gallons of water. You know, those big water cooler things, those big jugs are five gallons. So those are heavy, right? So imagine you carry two gallons at a time. That's 200 trips. Can you imagine the greatness of Rivka? So now, let's go to the next step, because this is actually the point that I wanted to make. Yaakov gets to the well, and Yaakov sees Rachel with her flock. Do you see how the situation now is reversed? In the beginning, it's Eliezer on behalf of Yitzchak. Eliezer has been sent by Avraham on behalf of Yitzchak to find a woman. And he has a flock. Now Yaakov is all alone, and he sees Rachel, and she has her flock. Do you see how it's flipped? Okay. So, if you were to ask me, what would Yaakov be thinking at that moment? He sees the incredible siyata de Shemaya, the incredible help from heaven, that he's just arrived at this place, hoping to meet his kinsmen, right? Because he wanted to marry within the family. That was, that was the instructions. And, and so all of a sudden, like, God just, like, bam, there she is. Just like it happened with Eliezer and Rivka. So again, there was this, like, similar, you know, help from heaven, like, going on. But, but here's the point. If it's me, I would have said, let's see if she's going to come to me and offer me water. And what would my, why would I have said that? Because I would have said, that's how it was done for my father. What does the Torah actually say Yaakov did? Yaakov goes to Rachel and he brings water and feeds her entire flock. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And let me just kind of go one step further into it. What, what, what I find so compelling about that is that Yaakov said, what was the attribute that was so admirable on the part of Rivka? The fact that she went crazily, massively out of her way in order to give kindness. And Yaakov said, I want to emulate that attribute and I want to bestow kindness. <laughs> in other words, what he didn't say, we have to be very, very, very clear about this because this is, this is something that's going to impact our lives, potentially, hopefully. Yaakov didn't say, what attribute did Eliezer and by extension Yitzchak receive? I want to also receive that gift from the other person. 
He said, what incredible attribute was being role modeled? I want to be the person who role models that in my own life. In other words, in, in other words, and here's the point in terms of applying it to all of us. If there's something that you want from another person, some quality that you want from another person, you model that quality and you put it out in the world. You be the emissary of that quality. There's a very interesting Chiddush, like a new idea. If you haven't heard it yet, it's like a very sort of like revelatory kind of thing about human nature, which is that many people think, many people think that, you, you know what? I, I would really like to love you more. I'd like to love you more than I do. So let's make a deal. Why don't you start doing more things for me? <laughs> and then I'll love you more. Is it very logical? And yet, what do the rabbis say? The rabbis say the inverse of that, which is that when you do more for another person, you invest more of your life force in the other person, and then you come to love the other person by doing more for them. Now, that's counterintuitive, because we're raised in a society which is all about give me this and give me that, and in fact, and, and I'm talking about textbooks right now in, in economics, what we exist in right now is actually called a service economy. Service me, right? On every level, whatever level, taxes, like house cleaning, like every single level. Bring, what you, 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 you want me to, you want me to, Cook my own food? No, 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 you cook the food for me. Wait a second, you want me to drive all the way to your place to receive the food that you cooked for me? No, 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 no. you have to drive it to my door. <laughs> I had something so strange last night. I, there was a, a knock at my door, like, it wasn't late last night, but I wasn't expecting anyone, so everything seemed late. And I was like, huh, I wonder who it is. And I opened up the door, and there's a bag of food from a Cuban restaurant on my front step. I'm like, I definitely did not order this. <laughs> and there was no address on it. So I'm like, I have to get this hot food to someone, right? They're waiting for this food. And there was a phone number on the ticket, and I didn't know who the phone number was. Was it the delivery guy, or was it the place it was going to? Anyway, it turned out to be my next-door neighbor. But, but that is fine. <laughs> it was very mysterious for about three seconds. So that's the, that is the, that's the, that's how I just want to begin. We're going to go back to the discussion of the unknown in a moment. But I think it's remarkable that Yaakov doesn't expect to be served, that he goes out and he is of service because he appreciates the attribute that was modeled, in this case, by his mother. And I'll just kind of make it just a tiny bit more practical, one more step, which is the Rambam says that, you know, when it comes to shopping for Shabbos, that that is also the man's job. 
And the man should not feel as though somehow he's being inconvenienced by the shopping for Shabbos at all. But rather, he should feel as though that this is an honor for him to be able to serve God in this way. And if you think about it, we, call, we talk about the Shabbos queen, right? So it's almost like that, that dynamic between Yaakov and, and Rachel, that he's of service to her. That each person today, by going to the supermarket or the grocery store, whatever it is, is, has a chance to model that behavior, be that Yaakov to, to Rachel, right? To be, like the Rambam says, that, that man coming, and it's his honor, it's his honor to be able to do something on behalf of the, the Shabbos queen, who is also your wife. The Shabbos queen is also your wife. That's how it is, becomes manifest. Everything is different levels, but, but on the here and now level, that's true. Okay. So I want to go back to a discussion of the unknown. I heard a phrase years and years ago from my friend Neil Seidel that has, you know, just stayed with me. It's kind of pierced my heart, which is he said that all of us live in the unprecedented present. All of us live in the unprecedented present. What, what does that mean? Well, what's a precedent? A precedent is a, it's a legal term. It means that there's something, a, a law that's been established, and now you know how to apply it in the present tense and moving forward. So there's a precedent. Except reality is much more complex than a legal document, right? Have you, you've heard the expression, like, it was a good idea on paper, right? And then... <laughs> Everything falls apart. By the way, I'll give you a writing tip if you ever want to write an action movie, okay? <laughs> Which is that the characters have to have an exceedingly well-worked-out plan, and as soon as they start on the mission itself, everything has to fall apart, <laughs> right? Now, doesn't you go, oh, yeah, I've seen that in about 1,200 movies. I didn't know that that was actually a writing formula. Well, now you know. Except, sadly, it's based on all of our personal experiences. Which is, you've got a plan, and it's such a good plan, and it falls apart either immediately or pretty quickly. Right? And then all of a sudden you enter into this realm yeah. called... I'm going to let her pick. All of a sudden you enter into this realm called the unknown. We live in this ocean called the unknown. This is our lives. Now, what do we do about it, and who is our role model for it? So I want to just get very practical up front, and then we'll explore the ideas more, more deeply, okay? Jacob is really that, that figure who... I mean, we all deal with it, but Jacob deals with it the most. And the Ishmitzer Rebbe points out something that I thought was really kind of like, wow, just a real kind of macro kind of observation about the lives of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Avraham was very, very wealthy. He even had his own currency, which was the most trusted currency in the ancient world, by the way. Kings sought his counsel. That was Avraham. Okay, he had a lot of tests in his life as well, but 
he was, you know, at least financially very, very well off. Then you have Yitzchak. Yitzchak inherited Avraham's wealth. And, of course, Yitzchak had his challenges in his life as well. But at the same time, there was that stability and that foundation. Comes Yaakov, and when Yaakov leaves his home, he leaves with nothing. He's penniless. Now, he's going to grow to be, and I heard Reb Shlomo say this, the richest person who ever lived. But that's going to come toward the end of his life. He's going to have a big chunk of his life where he's basically penniless and where he's, he has to do manual labor. And this manual labor, day in and day out, is very different from the experience of his father and his grandfather. That's just a very interesting idea, just, just that alone. And he felt <clears throat> that because, and this is the, the Ishbitzer talking, he felt that because his Abraham and Yitzchak had sort of like the, the wherewithal to be able to contemplate the most esoteric realms and had sort of like the, the time to do it because they didn't have to go out and tend the sheep, basically, right? And that he was put into a position where he couldn't have that time to just think about the spiritual realms in the way that his father and grandfather could. He felt that that was a sign of his own lowliness. And then the Ishbitzer says that Yaakov Avinu realized that wherever he was, God was, and that he could explore God in whatever he was doing. Which is really deep because it shows you that Yaakov now becomes even greater because he's able to explore God not just in the mystical realms, but in the present realms in front of him in this dimension on a level because of his involvement with the particulars of this world on a level that his father and grandfather couldn't do. And of course, this is actually, just to give that thought a little bit of a historical context, that's a very Hasidic thought. And the reason why I'm saying that is because if you know a little bit about Hasidic history, you know that the Jewish people had become very stratified, that there was a small elite, and this was because economically, you know, it's such, a, it's such an irony that the outside world looks at the Jewish people as being fabulously wealthy, and we've always been fabulously wealthy. We have lived in the most dire poverty for centuries, for centuries, because the outside world cut off all sources of income to us. I mean, dirt poverty for centuries. And so because money was so hard to come by, the idea that you could sit and be a scholar and sit in the base medrash and learn Torah all day, hey, wait a second, got to be out in the field. We need some cash, buddy. So there were always a certain circle of people who were given that opportunity, but we're talking about the greatest minds. Right? So, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the Jewish people, thank God, have been blessed with incredible genius. Incredible genius. You know, people like to say, 
that, you know, Einstein and Freud and Marx and, you know, all these Nobel Prize winners and everything like that. The Jewish people, you know, so smart. But you have to understand, we've had that level of genius and greater in every single generation. And they've applied all of that genius to one thing, Torah. And genius building upon genius building upon genius generation after generation, all in this field called Torah. So, you know, this is phenomenal. And it's very important that people understand, you know, what, you know, when you walk into a base medrash and you see a wall full of books, you're looking at a wall full of universes. It's not just someone had a couple of good ideas and they wanted to write them down. You're dealing with the elite of the elite of the elite, intellectually speaking, because economics forced it that only a certain number of people could be in that field. So what about the masses? So the masses felt incredibly low. Well, I'm not sitting in front of a Gomorrah. I'm not sitting in front of, you know, a Shulchan Aruch. So therefore, God's not with me. And so comes the Hasidic movement and says, God's with you when you're cutting down trees. God's with you when you're digging ditches. You know, when you're, when you're slaughtering animals, you know, for kashrus. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God is right there and you can connect with him. Maybe not through Torah study because you're not in front of an open safer, but through talking to God and through prayer. So this is like the highest. So in other words, getting back to the Ishbitzer's point, when he says that Yaakov Avinu felt horrible, basically, that, or rejected even, because his father and his grandfather were able to, you know, sit and had the luxury. You know, of course they had hardships as well, but, you know, relatively speaking, they had the luxury to, to really just contemplate for most of the day. And that he didn't have that. But he was able to connect in perhaps an even deeper way. And of course, Yaakov had that background as well, because, you know, he's learning most of his life before he gets into this situation, before he has to be a shepherd and a businessman, right? Because he, he says that love in his boss has changed his wages a hundred times. So it was, it, he was having to deal with... Okay. So... So now let's, let's get more deeply into this idea of the unknown. So Yaakov comes to find a wife. Now, in, the, in our mystical understanding of Torah, his two wives, Leah and Rachel, represent two different ideas, two different realms. Rachel represents the revealed world. And Leah represents the hidden realms. And, you know, I... Just my own thought, but if you rearrange the letters of Leah, it spells the word ohel, which means tent. 
And a tent means that there's something hidden, right? Because you don't see what's inside the tent from the outside of the tent. So Leah represents the hidden realms. Not only that, but isn't it interesting that Mashiach is a descendant of Leah, not of Rachel? Meaning to say that, you know, how the world gets fixed, we don't know. (laughs) Right? We know what we have to do. We know we have to love each other. We know we have to be unified. We know we have to keep the mitzvahs. This much we know. But how that is ultimately going to transform the entire world, you know, to this place of redemption, that's completely concealed to us. And so it's appropriate, if you think about it on a very deep level, which is that Leah gives birth, Leah, who's the master of the hidden realms, gives birth to the redemption, which is going to come from a very hidden place, really. So Yaakov has a plan, and the plan is very, very logical. The plan is, first we master the revealed realms, and then we go to the more esoteric realms. That, that's just logical. That just makes sense. And we know in terms of our own Torah study, classically speaking anyway, the way you begin is before you learn the mystical texts and things like that, you want to be able to learn the basic texts. And you have to have a basic mastery of those texts before you go to the more mystical texts. Now, in our generation, it's a little bit different because normally speaking, you go from the outside to the inside. But now in our generation, people who are so far apart, so far away, that we need the strong medicine of the inside to to bring us in. The, The classic Hasidic explanation of this is there's a king who has a, a child who's very sick and he brings the, all these doctors and wise men to try to cure the child and no one can cure the child. Now remember, this mushal, this parable that I'm telling you right now is maybe 300 years old, approximately, it's old. It's, it's talking about right now, it's talking about today. But I'm just telling you, just to appreciate it, it's, it's a couple hundred years old at least. So, so the king calls one more wise person, and this wise person says, I can cure your son, but the cure will require me to take the primary jewel from your crown, and I have to grind it down into a powder, and then to put it into a solution to feed it to your child, and, and that will cure your child. So are you willing to... To do that, king. And the king says, to cure my child, yes. So who is the king? The king, of course, is Hashem. Who is the child? That's the Jewish people. And what is that jewel? That's the mystical realms of Judaism. The deeper understanding of the universe. And so, so our generations are a little bit different. Normally you start from the outside and then you go to the inside. But for a lot of us, we need to go from the inside. And then once we experience on a soul level the truth of these teachings, then all of a sudden we're going to go to the outside. We're going to want to keep what these teachings are talking about. 
Because now we understand, oh, okay, there's a structure to the world. See, what, what, what a lot of people get confused by is they don't understand that there's a structure to the universe. And that the author of science is God. What is science? Science is just a description of how God runs the world. The one who created the world created science. There's no problem in terms of reconciling science and Torah. I heard in the name of the Rambam that if science and Torah disagree, you either have the science wrong or you have the Torah wrong. But they have the same author, so how can they disagree? And anyone who thinks that they disagree doesn't understand anything, really. So if I were to tell you, I'm teaching you how to play baseball, right? So you stand at the plate, and here's the bat, and you swing the bat at the ball, and, and then as soon as you hit the ball, you run to first base, right? Okay, so I go, okay, this looks like an interesting game. I like it. I want to learn. Okay, so I'm standing at the plate. I have the bat. I hit the ball, and I run to third base. <laughs> it's like, no, what are you doing? You run to first base first. That's not how I feel, though. <laughs> I want to run to third base first. Right, but, but there's rules to this game, <laughs> and you run to first base first. Right, but that's not how I feel about it. There's a structure to the universe. The mitzvot are not just, I, do I feel like it? Do I not feel like it? They're a description of how God created, they're the building blocks of the universe. Now you can say, I'm not ready for that mitzvah, or it's not my favorite mitzvah, <laughs> but not, no, no, no. Because there's a structure to the universe. That's just what it is. Okay. This is part of the difficulty of living in a world where we're engulfed by the unknown. Right? Because how do you navigate amidst the fog of not knowing? What is your rudder going to be? How are you going to get through it? And so Yaakov, each of the Avos has a certain attribute, which is their hallmark attribute. And so we say, Titan emes le Yaakov, which means truth is the attribute of Yaakov. So now this is actually going to get more complicated, not less complicated. But just before we get more complicated, let's just say that the rudder, and this is, if you want to take away teaching before we dive back into <laughs> the, the deeper ideas, if you just want to pause for a moment, how do I get through the unknown? Right? Because Yaakov is our model for that. And I'll give you more examples of that. You hold on to truth. You hold on to truth. Truth is your rudder. And then you say, well, what is truth? And we say, Torah emet. The Torah is a Torah of truth. The Torah is truth. You hold on to the Torah amidst the confusion, and that's how you navigate through the unknown. That's how you do it. 
And if you say, well, does it work? Well, there's only one ancient people that's still around. (laughs) One. Only one. Which is the Jewish people. Only one has been able to navigate the vicissitudes of history. And not just, just like the ups and downs of history. Empires who have made it their mission to destroy the Jews. You know, one of the crazy things, I remember just, just like, like, you know, you, you appreciate on some level, to whatever extent we can, the evilness of Hitler. Yamach Shema, right? His name should be erased. You, you, you appreciate it on whatever level. Maybe you had family who went through the Holocaust, right? Maybe you went through the Holocaust, right? But there's one point that I find, like, like beyond evil. Like, you realize, like, wow, wow. Like, this is now even more evil than I could have understood initially. When he's told by his generals, you're losing the war, you have to take these forces, which you're dedicating to the Jewish, destroying the Jewish people, and you have to use them against your outside enemies. And Hitler goes, no. And he sacrifices the entire war to finish the job of exterminating, or what he hoped to be, the extermination of the Jewish people. I mean, the level of his dedication to total evil is absolute. And we survived that. So something supernatural is going on with the Jewish people. And God is saying, your survival is contingent on your performance of the mitzvah. So that is our rudder through the unknown. And the thing is, is that we never really know how things are going to work out. There's so many twists and turns to life. You think you're heading toward a brick wall, and then all of a sudden it becomes like something else. Or you bounce off the brick wall into a pot of gold, right? Like you actually hit the brick wall. Well, yeah, I thought the brick wall was going to disappear. No, I'm, my legs are broken, but here's the pot of gold, <laughs> you know? So we really don't know. It's, everything is so surprising. So now let's go back to what we were saying about the revealed realms and the unknown realms, okay? So we've got a very normal desire on the part of Yaakov, very logical. First I marry Rachel, she represents the revealed realms, then I marry Leah, those are the unrevealed realms. And what does Lovin do? And Lovin is another aspect of the, just the unknown, why? Because Lovin is totally evil. He's really the proto-Hitler, if we're talking about the forces of evil right now. Kabbalistically, we say that the energy of the Nachash, the snake in the Garden of Eden, that that energy goes into Lovin, and then Lovin becomes reincarnated as Bilam. So this is like the ultimate, this is the ultimate horrible you know, stream of energy in the world. 
Levin tries to eliminate the entire Jewish people when we're just one family. Bilaam tries to do it when we're a nation. Now with that in mind, what does the name Levin mean? White. Isn't that crazy? In other words, the forces of evil presenting themselves as purity. Right? What do the Nazis say? They only want a pure race. I mean, what's so wrong with that? You know, when you invoke the word purity, it sounds so good, doesn't it? Like ivory soap. It's so pure. I gotta buy that. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a beautiful word. But look how it's like Lovin. Lovin's name is white, and yet what is that white masking? You know, there's, when you know something is evil, and then when you don't even know that it's evil, that's the most evil, right? Because you don't even know what you're engaging with. So Levin comes and he switches everything over. And now all of a sudden Yaakov is entering into this marriage with Leah, which means now Yaakov is being deprived of this foundational structure that he envisioned. First we go from the revealed realms to the unrevealed, the hidden realms. First Rachel, then Leah. And what happens instead? He's plunged immediately into the realms of the unknown. And this theme of the unknown can be seen throughout Yaakov's life. You see, we have, we're going to talk about the blessing that Yaakov gets from Yitzhak in one moment. But I just want you to appreciate it before, before we go into that. And the fact that Yitzchak, when he gives Yaakov the blessing, he gives Yaakov the blessing from this place of the unknown. Why? Because Yitzchak thinks that he's blessing Asaph. So from Yitzchak's point of view, he doesn't know that he's talking to Yaakov. All right, so now let's, let's get deeper. Everything, any discussion of Torah, if you want to be like really, you know, on it, is going to go back to the Garden of Eden and is going to go back to the Tree of Knowledge. And this is no exception. So you have the Tree of Knowledge, which sounds good, right? We love knowledge. We're the people of the book, right? So what do you mean that when we ate from the tree of knowledge that we brought death into the world. That's what the Torah says. Does that mean that we're ultimately anti-intellectual? No. But there's something higher than the tree of knowledge, and that's the tree of life. We, it's not, we were destined to eat from the tree of knowledge, but first we had to eat from the tree of life. There's so many people who are so intellectual but they don't know anything about life. Do you know how many smart people have ruined the world? (laughs) There's no shortage of intellectuals who have made everything far worse. Do you know why? 
because they weren't coming at it from a place of life. And we also say, Torah Chayim. The Torah is a Torah of life. The Torah is Eitz Chayim. The Torah is the tree of life. It all goes back to the Torah once again. So there's something, if you understand that God is infinite and we're finite, then you begin to understand that you're only going to grasp to a certain extent before your mind hits a glass ceiling. And then you don't understand anymore. I think that in terms of understanding the zeitgeist, you can divide the world up into two categories in this particular area. Those who think that ultimately we will understand everything, just we're not scientifically advanced enough yet. But we're on our way. We're absolutely on our way to understanding absolutely everything. Just give us a little bit more time. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is, what are you talking about? <laughs> you think you're ever going to know absolutely everything? Are you joking? You're a joker. You're not an intellect. You're a joker. You're self-deluded. How can the finite encompass the infinite? God is infinite. One of the great ironies of being a human being is that God creates our brain and God creates something called, you ready for this? God creates something called logic. Do you understand that logic is just a creation like squirrels and lemonade? God hardwires our mind with a software system called logic. He creates our brain, installs this system called logic, and then you're ready for this? Then we tell God what he's capable of and what he's not capable of. Is that a joke? It's a total joke. And we say, well, you can't do that, God, because it's not logical. <laughs> and God said, I, excuse me, I created logic, <laughs> and I'm not bound by it. And if you think I'm bound by logic, just review the events of your day since breakfast. <laughs> right? So that's the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge brings death into the world. Then there's the tree of life. Now we have access to the tree of knowledge, and we were destined to eat from the tree of knowledge, but first we had to eat from the tree of life. And it didn't happen that way. Now, when Adam and Chava, when we accepted the Torah and Mount Sinai, the Talmud says that we got to the place that Adam and Chava were, Adam and Eve were, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. That's awesome. That's awesome. In other words, when we were first were created, we were above the tree of knowledge, then we eat from the tree of knowledge and we fall below. Then we accept the Torah. How do we accept the Torah? We say, na sevenishma. Those were the incredible words. Like, probably this is the greatest moment of the history of the Jewish people when we said those words. Na sevenishma. And it says, who, God wonders, who taught the Jewish people the secret of the angels? When we said those words, what do those words mean? Let me translate. Nase means we will do and then we will hear. 
In other words, all right, this Judaism thing sounds sort of compelling. Explain it to me. <laughs> if I like your explanation and I understand everything, then I'll do it. Right? But the joke is, is that do you understand everything in your life before you do it? Right? Like when you send a text, do you know how that works? <laughs> when you fly on an airplane, do you know how that works? <laughs> when you take penicillin, do you know how that works? <laughs> so it doesn't seem to be a barrier in any other parts of our life, doing things that we don't understand, right? We said na sevinishma because we understood that there was a structure to the universe and that God has a plan and that God is good. And when we understand the goodness of God, then we say, okay, God, whatever you want. I mean, maybe I don't understand it, but if you're good and you love me, and this is how to fix the world, then, I'll, then I'm on board to the, to, the, to the best that I can do. I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. But to the best I can do, I'm going to try. At that point, we rose above the tree of knowledge. Okay, now let's, we didn't forget about Yitzchak and Yaakov. Let's go back to Yitzchak and Yaakov. When Yitzchak gives the bracha to Yaakov, Yitzchak doesn't know that he's giving it to Yaakov. These are the key words, doesn't know. In other words, the blessing that Yitzchak gives Yaakov is from above the tree of knowledge. Because he doesn't know what is going on while he's doing it. Right? I got the chills. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you talk about what was the power of that blessing. Oh, my God. So he gives him the realms, the blessing of the unknown. The blessing to navigate amidst the unknown comes down from Yitzchak to Yaakov. And now Yaakov is carrying this awesome blessing with him. Now listen to this. He's escaping for his life. His brother Esav wants to kill him for taking the blessing. Which he deserved, by the way. And he goes in his journey... And he falls asleep and he has a dream about a ladder going up to the heavens. And he realizes this place that I'm sleeping is the entrance to heaven. And where did he fall asleep? In the Holy of Holies of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Yerushalayim. That's where he was sleeping. And now he says these words. And I'm going to say it to you one way, and then I'm going to reinterpret this phrase for you in a moment, okay? Because it's super deep. Okay, this is chapter 28, verse 16 in, in Breshis, in Genesis. Yaakov awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely Hashem is present in this place, and I did not know. So... The simple way of understanding that is it's one statement of fact. Hashem is in this super holy place and I didn't know. Or how about this? Hashem is in this place which gave me 
this awesome spiritual elevation. So now I'm on the level of above knowing. I did not know. Because of Hashem's presence in this place, I have risen above the tree of knowledge to this place of not knowing, this exalted realm of not knowing. And now he goes, and who does he marry first? Leah, the realm of the unknown. So we all intuitively understand the structure of going from the revealed to the unknown. That's very logical. But Yaakov, we're not Yaakov. (laughs) We are Yaakov because Yaakov gets another name, Israel. And all of us are Israel. So all of us are Yaakov. This is talking about our lives right now. And now we're really going to talk about our lives in a moment. We understand the logical progression of going from the revealed to the unknown. But that was not Yaakov's lot. Yaakov was going from Leah to Rachel, from the unknown to the revealed. So what does that mean practically in terms of our lives? And let me give you an example. I heard this from Rabbi Manus Friedman, this example, but I'm going to apply it to our present discussion. Imagine you have a cookie, and you want to say a blessing before you eat the cookie, right? So you might think that the cookie is sort of like a, spiritually speaking, an inert entity. It's just a cookie. It's some flour and water and some flavoring. Okay. It just is what it is. Now I make a blessing on it. I make this blessing. And now all of a sudden I infuse it with Kedusha, with holiness, and now it's like more than it was before. Okay, that is the classic way of understanding it. But listen to what Rabbi Freeman said, way deeper. God already fills the entire world, which means the cookie is already holy. <laughs> that's, our, that's our baseline. The cookie's already holy. So what am I doing when I make the blessing? I'm revealing the holiness that's there. Like, imagine you take a a shower and the bathroom mirror gets filled with fog. And then after you step out, you clear away the fog and then you reveal what's there. When we do mitzvahs, when we do acts of love and caring for each other, We are revealing God's presence, which is already here and already fills the world. God is already here. I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, really, it was such a striking example, I never forgot it. He says, really, you should be able to hear the sound of a monkey in China. But anger makes the loudest noise in the world. Amazing. In other words, the world is so filled with this chaotic energy, this dissonant energy of anger, that it blocks all the pathways. It blocks the revelation of God's presence. And when you do mitzvahs, what happens is you harmonize the enemies of 
the enemies. You harmonize the energies of the universe. But you know something? That was like a Freudian slip. You also harmonize the enemies. Let's go deeper. The gematria of Esav is shalom. When you harmonize the enemies, Esav represents the Yetzirah. When you, when, you, when you harmonize the enemies, you bring peace, shalom. So what does it mean that Yaakov gets blessed from the unknown, goes and achieves the unknown, right? He, he gets to this place where God is present and I did not know. Now I'm on the level of not knowing, above the tree of knowledge. Now I marry Leah first, who stands for the realms of the unknown. So what is the logical progression of going from Leah to Rachel, from the unknown to the known? To make that which is unknown today, which is the presence and the closeness of God, known. That is our job. To take that which is here, but isn't understood and isn't revealed, and to reveal that which is already here. That is the progression of going from the unknown to the known. To make the unknown known. Now listen to this. This is a related idea. This is a related idea, but very much on the subject. And you get a little taste for like the Ishbitzer, like what the Ishbitzer is doing, and just in terms of his phenomenal depth. A very, very short thought. But just like, you just like hear this and you go like, wow, you know. So... One of the promises, one of the blessings that God gives to Yaakov, right at the time of the dream of the ladder and everything like that, right in that section, Hashem says, the land upon which you are sleeping, I will give to you. Listen to this. The, this is the Ishbitzer. The meaning of this blessing is that even when you are asleep and unconscious, all your thoughts and ideas will be clear and clean. I'll read that one more time. The land upon which you are sleeping, I will give you. The meaning of this blessing is that even when you are asleep and unconscious, all of your thoughts and ideas will be clear and clean. Do you know what the unconscious is? Those are the realms of the unknown that exist inside of you. <laughs> I will bless you that even as you dwell amidst the unconscious and the unknown, that all of your actions and thoughts will be clear and clean. Such is the laser sharpness and purity of the Torah that it will get into you even when you're asleep. I saw more than once, I was at a teaching that Reb Shlomo was doing, and you know, he would teach for hours. He would play the guitar in between, and he would teach for hours. And there would be people who would fall asleep, because, you know, it was later, they were tired, the evening was going on for a while. And I remember, I think more than once, someone sort of like feeling like a little bit uncomfortable, embarrassed in front of Reb Shlomo, that the person next to them was, was sleeping, and, you know, said to Reb Shlomo, should I wake the person up? And Reb Shlomo didn't care. And, and I heard him say, I heard him say, 
No, no, no. These, teeping, these teachings are so deep, they'll go right into his sleep. Right? The idea that even your unconscious can become purified. I saw from the Eretz Tzvi, Rav Arya Tzvi Frumer, Olav Shalom, Sacred Tzadok Levrocha, who is the Rosh Hashiva of Hachmei Lublin, after Rabbi Meir Shapiro, the creator of the Daf Yomi. And he mentions this teaching in his Sefer many times, that there are ten levels to a person's heart. Ten levels to your heart. And the tenth level of your heart is the realm of the unknown. Right? What? And I saw him say at one point, do you know when you can get to the tenth level of your heart? On Purim. Now, what is Purim about? Purim is that you go adloyata, which means beyond knowing above the tree of knowledge. Beyond knowing means above the tree of knowledge. And when you're above the tree of knowledge, you can even get to the tenth layer of your own heart. It's okay not to know. There's nothing wrong with you if you don't know. Don't make this the mistake of allowing paralysis to enter into your life because you don't know. It's important to move forward in life, to keep on moving forward. And it's okay to make a leap of faith because basically getting out of bed every morning is a leap of faith. So we exist within the realms of leaps of faith. They just come in different packages, small, medium, and large. But if you, ever, if you ever reach a place where either consciously or unconsciously you say, I can't make the next move in my life until I absolutely know, you are basically making yourself a prisoner of your own body of knowledge, which, speaking personally, I wouldn't want to do. I want access to that realm of wisdom which is beyond my body of knowledge. We have access through our faith, through our Masora, to a realm beyond which a human being can understand on their own. This is an incredible gift. This is an incredible gift. I heard Rabbi... Aidin Steinsalt say, for thousands of years, man spoke to God. Do you know what happened at Mount Sinai? God spoke back. There is a creator. There is a structure to the universe. There is a Torah. And we've been given access to it. But the next step is ours because God wanted a world where we decided what we wanted to do. That is the primary reason why God created the entire world, because he wanted to create a human being who wouldn't be intimidated, a creature that wouldn't be intimidated or bullied by God. 
and could decide on their own what they wanted to do. Because after a certain point when God becomes more revealed, your free choice disappears. Angels don't have free choice. Even though they don't see all of God, they see enough of God that they can't do anything against God's will. But that got a little bit old hat for God. God envisioned something way cooler. What about a punny speck who could actually call the shots? (laughs) What would they do? (laughs) What would they do? That was really intriguing to God. You know, I don't know if you've ever met someone like really fancy in your life, but you sort of like want to be interesting when you're in their company, you know what I mean? You want to tell them, oh, you know, I got to pick my kid up from the soccer practice. And then, um, you, have you seen the prices of gas? I mean, you know, the CEO is going to have like one foot in his limousine, believe me. Like, okay, God bless you, but I got things to do. You know what I mean? So to say something really interesting to someone who knows absolutely everything. So the fact that God was truly intrigued by the human condition (laughs) means that there's really something exalted, absolutely exalted to our ability to make a decision, especially in regard to what we want to do vis-a-vis God in terms of our lives. That's Phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Okay, so it just end with a bracha that Hashem should bless us, that we shouldn't be afraid by the unknown, that we should learn to become comfortable with lack of clarity, and that we shouldn't be paralyzed by indecision but that we should have the strength and the courage to move forward and to take those next steps and to reveal that which is already there, which is the oneness of God. What follows now are some questions and answers. Well, I think that, that life requires, or a successfully lived life, in my opinion, requires a degree of bravery. And it's hard to be brave. Some people call other people brave, which means that you were gifted with this ability to go into situations that other people find scary, But for you, they're not scary because you are brave. You have this gift. But if you think about it, that actually doesn't make any sense. In order to be brave means you have to have been scared. So a brave person is like everybody else. Everybody is scared. So you're also scared. But the difference with the brave person is the brave person is willing to enter into that place of uncertainty. And that's what makes them brave. Not that there was a lack of being scared. They were equally scared. So I think that, I think that we have to cultivate within ourselves bravery. You know, Harvard being Harvard, 
I remember walking into someone's dorm room and in their bathroom they had a little sign, which was a quote from the German poet Goethe. And it was, there's magic in boldness, which I like because it's true. Because when you are brave, you enter into a different place that it's sort of like you wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. Yeah. Say it again. Is the, is the freedom that we have. The freedom. The free will. The free will that we have. A hundred, a thousand percent, yes. Yes, in other words, if I'm understanding you, is everything destined, is everything already determined? Is that what you're asking? No, I know it. Like, almost everything is determined, but can it be because of not deciding, because of fear, because of something? But re- remember, not deciding is also a decision. So we often trick ourselves, and we think that, I'm still deciding. I'm still deciding because we want to think that we haven't decided yet, because we're afraid to make a decision. So we say, I'm still deciding, but the truth is, we've decided not to finish deciding. Meaning to say that we've decided not to make a move, which in itself is a move. So indecision, when it gets to a certain stage, you can think about something as long as it's productive thinking. But when you're quote-unquote, thinking about something hits a plateau and there's nothing new about it, then you've reached the decision already to stay put. So that's, that's important. You, a person has to know that about themselves. But in terms of can we change our lives through the choices that we make, 10,000%. 10,000%. I mean, look, you could move to Alaska tomorrow. I promise you, you're going to have a different life than you have here. I mean, that's a silly example. But there's, there's a million ways we can change our life. I, I didn't grow up keeping Shabbos. I didn't keep Shabbos growing up. I decided at 24 to start keeping Shabbos. Radically changed my life. Radically changed my life. You know? I started learning. I made the decision to learn Torah every day. Radically changed my life. Radically. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.